Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails, to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items, $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about the question, should you go abroad for fertility treatment? This is a um, this is known sometimes as fertility tourism, although I'm not really wild about that topic and we'll uh, talk later about why I don't think it's a very <laughs> appropriate or, or kind title to use. Um, but this is a topic that comes up a lot uh, in the world of infertility because infertility treatment is not inexpensive. Uh, so the question comes up, should I go abroad to save money? Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this show. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Don Davenport, your host of this show, as well as the director of Creating a Family. You can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten and has been underwritten for a while now by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a free program they want you to know about. It's called My Fertility Navigator. This program offers free, obviously, one-on-one support for women who are struggling to get pregnant and really don't know what their next step needs to be. You enroll in My Fertility Navigator, and you receive a personalized guidance from a live, dedicated uh, fertility navigator who can provide you with information about infertility and fertility as well, including lists of nearby fertility centers, information about financial resources, and can talk to you about some of your treatment options. To get more information, you can go to their website, myfertilitynav.com, myfertilitynav.com. And we thank them for their support. Today, oh, first of all, let me stop a minute and say, uh, before I tell you about today's show and our guest, uh, let me remind you that this show, and as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners. One such partner is Cooper Genomics. They are a reproductive genetic testing laboratory, and they're focused on providing genetic tests and services for really every step along the fertility journey. They start, they can offer you carrier screening, uh, they can offer PGS, PGD, as well as non-invasive prenatal screening for individuals and couples who are planning a family, or if you're pursuing, pursuing IVF or even early in pregnancy. They are proud to provide comprehensive genetic counseling to their patients, and I can't stress enough how important it is if you're going to do genetic testing to have a good qualified genetic counselor to help you understand the results. So you can get more information at their website, coopergenomics.com. Now, to tell you about the show, uh, we're going to be interviewing today Dr. Glenn Cohen. He is a Harvard professor as well as the author of a book called Patients with Passports, Medical Tourism, Law, and Ethics. The reason that I was fascinated uh, uh, and wanted to interview him was because he talks about 
both the the practicality, where it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense to go abroad, and specifically we're talking here about fertility treatment, although his book covers all sorts of medical procedures, but we talk about uh, 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 fertility treatment. And, but he also talks about the ethics and things you need to think about, questions you need to ask, how you find a safe clinic, if, you, if this is something you're wanting. Is it possible? Is every country an option? We just we cover the, uh, the whole waterfront of, of ideas, if this is something that you are considering. This is a re-air of a show we did, uh, uh, I think, two years ago, uh, or a couple of years ago. And uh, it, uh, it's, uh, you don't get good information on this topic. It's really hard. And so we wanted to bring it to you again because, quite frankly, we just thought it was such a strong show to begin with. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Glenn, to Creating a Family. Thank you for having me. I uh, I enjoyed the book. I, um, I and and this is a topic that I know a fair amount of, or at least in the uh, uh, in the, in relation to fertility treatment. Uh, and I I enjoyed the uh, the personal stories or the uh, the case law, the cases uh, of of what can really happen. Uh, and the um, I also appreciated that. Uh, the nuanced approach that this is a really complex area. That's just it. Just it's really complex, and there's not really simple answers. And I thought you did a good job in the book of of highlighting that. Uh, so I, I thank you. Thank you for saying so. Um, all right. So you know we think of term we think in terms of fertility tourism as as from uh, intended parents and intended parents for our audience is the uh, preferred term for parents who are using third party reproduction uh, egg donation sperm donation or surrogacy or embryo donation um and we think at, so the intended parents being in the united states going abroad but in fact, um, according to your book, much of the demand is from from other countries seeking this out, often coming to the United States. And I think people don't really realize that that the United States is a, is a fairly big uh, destination for fertility tourism. Um, do you have any feel for how uh, how much of how common is it for others in other for for families, uh, intended parents in other countries, to come to the United States? It's not uncommon, and there are really two reasons. One is just the quality of the services we provide. We, in general, tend to be a high-quality uh, fertility service country. But the other is that our rules about who can get access to reproductive technology are much more liberal than most of the world. So many countries have restrictions on single individuals, LGBT individuals, uh, age limits, uh, for example, and other kinds of regulation, for example, of sperm donor non-anonymity. And many people come to the United States because they either can't get access to the services they want in their home country or uh, they want to get something that's unavailable in their home country. So specifically, what procedures bring people to the United States most often? Yeah, so one big one is uh, surrogacy and commercial surrogacy in particular. So some of the United States have uh, a much strong – so in general, many countries in Europe in particular have a prohibition on commercial surrogacy. It can be criminalized, whereas in the United States, most states don't make it criminal. And indeed, some states like California uh, for gestational surrogacy, uh, that is where uh, the gametes don't come from the surrogate, where the egg doesn't come from the surrogate, actually will allow robust contractual enforcement. So surrogacy is uh, a big one, but we see people come for artificial insemination, for IVF, for ICSI, uh, for all kinds of services. It really depends on where they're coming from. 
What about um, gender selection? There's some of that as well. So some of these countries have much stronger kind of prohibitions on gender selection. Gender selection, I think, you know, you'll find if you talk to a lot of fertility doctors, they don't really want to talk about it very much, but there is some gender selection that goes on in the United States. Uh, on the flip side, there are technologies like sperm sorting technologies, microsort, for example, that we don't have licensed in the United States. So you'll have some Americans go abroad. And, you know, basically this is instead of, uh, fertilizing your embryos and then trying to figure out the gender. Instead, it makes it more likely that you will have sperm uh, that bears the the, gen the sex that you find desirable based on the way in which they kind of separate out the sperm. Uh, what countries are, are leading in the microsorting for gender selection? Clearly not so, the United States. Yeah. yeah, clearly not the United States. Uh, I've heard of a lot of people going to Mexico. We don't have a lot of good data, I would say, that is actually kind of quantify it. The place where we have the most quantified data is actually in Europe, within Europe, where we can see actual real patterns of people moving from one European country to another, mostly for legal reasons, trying to get a service that's not available to them. The academics have done a much better job, and I think it's also part of the way in which fertility clinics are regulated in Europe, of kind of gathering data and sharing data about fertility tourism within Europe then we really have data from elsewhere in the world. The rest, we have cases, we've got anecdotes, we've got stories, but much harder to quantify. Okay, so uh, we've talked about the procedures that tend to bring people from abroad to the United States. What procedures, other than the one you just mentioned, microsorting for gender selection, um, draw U.S. citizens abroad for fertility treatment? So I would say most U.S. citizens go abroad for fertility treatment um, largely for cost reasons. That tends to be the main motivator because the cost in particular of commercial surrogacy can be much lower elsewhere in the world. So India, Thailand have been popular destinations for uh, surrogacy. In recent years, it's been a bit of a downtick in that in part because there's been some scandals that have kind of made those countries more sensitive. But I would say that the predominant thing that I've seen Americans travel for tends to be uh, surrogacy services. What about egg donation? Is that that used to be more common? Is that uh, is that becoming less of a draw because the cost uh, in the United States, I'm guessing through maybe egg banking now, has has reduced the cost somewhat, or, or is there still a fairly strong demand pulling U.S. citizens uh, abroad? Well, so one thing is that a lot of the countries have kind of uh, restricted the, uh, what they'll allow to be paid for eggs or whether they'll allow for payment for eggs at all. Canada, for example, in the last decade has kind of restricted a little bit of that uh, market. I would say the place where I've seen the most robust discussion is actually the market for particular racial groups that are not well represented in the U.S. egg banking industry. So, for example, South Asian patients seeking to have a South Asian egg donor more likely to think about going to India than what your typical kind of white Midwestern American think about going over there. I mean, egg banking is interesting because uh, unlike with surrogacy where uh, there's not a lot of phenotype, there's not a lot of uh, traits in the child that's going to be represented by the surrogate, when it comes to egg banking, you're really looking for kind of a match. And so it depends a lot on who you are and whether uh, the person you're seeking uh, has the kinds of characteristics you're interested in or that match your own eth ethnicity, for example. That can be a big driver. But it used to be that the market for eggs in America eggs from Jewish people, eggs from East Asians, and eggs from South Asian were harder to find as compared to uh, eggs from the Caucasian population. 
So so people who are, even now, people who are seeking a specific ethnic group or religious group um, may well go abroad uh, to the countries that they think that they will be able to find. I mean, that's a real, I mean, from an egg donor standpoint, I think you're correct. I think people are generally trying to to match their ethnic background, which makes, unless they are uh, Indian by, uh, or, 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 um, uh, uh, South Asian, or unless they have, they are, they or their spouse is of that ethnicity. Um, getting egg donors from that country is usually not a strong draw from them, or it hasn't been. Um, so, uh, how, how do how do surrogacy uh, organizations, uh, clinics in other countries, work around that? Do they get their egg donors from other countries? And in the case, if they're looking for a Caucasian, are they going to Eastern European countries to get egg donors? Yeah, typically. So uh, in India, for example, or in Thailand, which have been, uh, you know, traditionally hotbeds for surrogacy tourism, I would say that most of the people come with an egg donor already identified or even frozen eggs now uh, along. And so you might recruit an egg donor from the United States if you're a U.S. citizen, and with the egg donor, either travel with her or more likely travel with the egg or have the egg fertilized in the United States and travel with the embryos over to India and have implantation occur there. So typically what's interesting about this medical tourism in general is that often it's not just one country to another country, but there's often multiple parties and sometimes uh, different parts of the process are coming from different places. So it is possible, for example, to have a Ukrainian egg donor and use a surrogate in uh, India, for example. Uh, and these leads to some fascinating issues and problems and really that requires some sophistication to navigate, which is why I think in surrogacy in particular, the agencies and the brokerages have had a major role in kind of paving the way or not paving the way. I mean, you're you're talking about such a complex issue. I mean, if you think about it, because you're just – we're going to come to that in a little bit, but if once you start uh, mixing and matching, I do know of one um, – uh, and there may be others of, of this as well, but I know of one um, uh, organi- uh, one um, uh, organization here that uh, Egg Donor Alliance that is going um, taking sperm abroad, creating em- and getting an egg donor from another country. I, I don't um, uh, I think Eastern European, I believe Ukraine, maybe I'm not sure, uh, and uh, fertilizing them over there and then shipping the embryos back to the United States. So yeah, that's another just yet another uh form that can that this can take. Um and, and there's right. a lot and I just to jump in for a second, there's just a lot that can also happen that's unexpected. So one of my favorite accounts has to do with Indian surrogates when India changed its law on foreign surrogacy, they moved some of the women over to Nepal. Uh and Nepal was suddenly the place to go and then the Nepalese earthquake occurred, this huge devastating earthquake. And in particular, the country of Israel that had a lot of people using surrogacy of surrogates who were then in Nepal had to decide whether they're going to airlift them, uh, only the ones who hadn't delivered or the ones who had delivered and the mothers and the children together and how to think about this. It's just to say on top of all the best laid plans of mice and men, sometimes things occur that are totally unexpected. 
You know that is so true. <laughs> yes, and I mean we're we're and it's and and it's very complex, and we're, and partly it's complex because of some of the ethical reasons. And you just hit upon one. I mean, do you, if the mother's already delivered, do you leave her there, and or do you take the baby? It just gets it's very complex. Uh, before we move too much further to the ethics, though, let's talk about. You said that um, most of the, that cost was the driving factor for most. Uh, citizens of the U.S. who go abroad uh, for seeking uh, treatment. And for the most part, let's just get it out there, that um, not too many people that I know of are going abroad for IVF. Uh, there are, uh, although I'm sure that still does happen, it tends to be third-party reproduction. Have you seen anything different from that, uh, uh, Glenn? No, that's exactly right. That when you factor in kind of the complications and the difficulty, you know, the cost savings have to be significant, I think, for most people to consider this as an option. And, you know, one nice thing about the price of IVF is, you know, although it hasn't gone down that much, it is, I think, becoming more affordable and part of more insurance coverage in more places in America. So I tend to think that most of the focus, as you say, has been on third-party reproduction, where there's almost no, there's no insurance coverage. The costs are significant. Uh, you have to deal with a complicated web of other people no matter where you do it. So I tend to think that's the place where most people are more open to thinking about traveling abroad. Yeah, and their cost savings are greater for sure. All right, so speaking of cost saving, what uh, roughly within a range, what's some of the differences in price for egg donation in the U.S. and abroad? So in other words, how much money are you actually savings? And, and then I'm going to ask you the same question for surrogacy. So for egg donation, how much money are you really saving if you're going abroad? So in general, with medical tourism, the kind of rule of thumb is you tend to pay about 20 to 30% of what you would pay in the United States. So that's kind of the kind of rule of thumb. When it comes to surrogacy specifically, I'm just going into the book now, I'm going to give you some numbers of what some of the surrogates in Anand, which is a place in um, in India, a village where uh, surrogacy is particularly common. And this is where Dr. Patel's clinic is. Uh, okay. So um, the surrogates were paid approximately 300,000 rupees, which is $7,500, which is roughly, you know, about a third of what the prospective parents pay the agency. So there's also uh, some of it being taken up. So this is from a study in, I'll give you the year, because it may be a little bit out of date now. But I think this is from, oh, roughly, uh, let's just see, 2010, 2011, sometime around then is when these numbers come from. Okay. So, you know, it's significantly less than what, what Americans pay for surrogacy in the United States. Now, did you say that was what the surrogate made, or is that the total? That's not the total price no, of what No, that's what the surrogate the intended- paid, so 7500 so roughly three times that is what you're talking about, so according to this study, right? So surrogacy offered them $7,500, roughly one-third of what the prospective parents pay, so you'd be talking about 22000 U.S. for everything. Gotcha. And that uh, likely also covers the egg donation or just surrogacy. Actually, I don't so from sure this study, that. I don't have a. They, they don't break it out in that way. My guess is it depends a little bit on whether you're coming with your own uh, egg donor or whether you're using an egg donor from their center. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So. Um, and and the average cost of it's a little hard to say and it's been a while since I've looked at the numbers, but the average cost for surrogacy in the United States um is going to run you oh, eighty to a hundred, is that the numbers you're still giving? 
Yeah, I would say that's about right. That's the numbers I've seen. Yeah, so and about I'll, eighty yeah. to one hundred thousand. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, again, roughly, as I said, about a third. Uh, you're paying roughly all in about a third of what you pay in the United States. Maybe a little, maybe twenty percent, twenty percent to thirty percent is basically what you're yeah. paying of the U.S. cost, which is significant. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and egg donation probably a similar uh, uh, twenty to thirty percent of what you're going to pay here in the United States. And egg it donation be, would, can be you know anywhere yeah, from would, ten to twenty. It would be my guess, although, you know, there's interesting right now in the United States, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recently settled a lawsuit which claimed that they were engaged in uh, price fixing in the market for eggs by recommending that it be 5000 to $10,000 is the range, is what the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recommended. And they've decided to withdraw that guidance. So it'll be interesting to see whether the price of uh, eggs in America changes as a result or not. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I'm watching that as well. Uh, yeah, okay. We could take bets off air of what we think is going to happen. <laughs> All right, so, okay. So, uh, and the major countries for surrogacy, I think you've already, in, in 2016 or 2015, the major countries for surrogacy abroad, well, let's uh, actually, let's don't say abroad, because um, I think we would probably have to include the United States in that as well. So what are That's the right. major uh, countries that uh, intended parents throughout the world are seeking or going to for to find surrogates? So I would say the United States is a big place because, as I said, in the United States, you can um, if you go to California, you can get contractual enforcement. We see a lot of tourism from Europe to uh, the United States. That's the direction of the flow. India and Thailand continue to be big destinations, but much lower than they were four or five years ago because there have been some scandals in both countries that have led to much more of a cracking down in terms of access and also more restrictions and also more rules about who can access and who can't. But I would say those are the three destinations that are probably a hotspot, but the data is very kind of spotty. We know a lot about travel within Europe. We know people travel to these places, but we have no way of quantifying just how many people come to the United States or go to India or go to Thailand. For the purpose of, of, well, it seems like we would have that because people, because it becomes an immigration issue getting the child back into the home country. So wouldn't there, wouldn't the records be pretty good for the number of children who are conceived, are born via surrogacy in another country? So I think you could seek to get the state from the State Department to get data on that. There is some trickiness in terms of, and we can talk about that in a moment, about what the pathway to citizenship for children are. So, for example, can you tell the difference between children who are adopted from these places versus uh, children who come in through reproductive technology, right? So you may have to do some fine-grained stuff. But I haven't seen anybody work with the State Department's data to be able to say with any kind of authority how many children are born through surrogacy abroad. You'd also have to try to figure out which reproductive technology service was done. In some cases, it could be just gestational surrogacy as opposed to full surrogacy and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that's you're right. Okay. All right. And, and, And... We have been hearing a lot lately that India's laws are changing pretty dramatically right now. So do you, uh, what is the current status of the legality of surrogacy in India? So there have been um, several bills that have put, put forth. The last time I looked at it, which was about a year ago, uh, it hadn't yet been transposed into law. But I think the general sense is India and Thailand are becoming more restrictive about who can use 
commercial surrogacy. So, for example, gay and single individuals are facing more of a kind of, I don't want to say discrimination, but more lack of access to these places. So they're no longer as good a destination for these individuals. And also there's more kind of being put in place, which I think is probably a good thing in terms of kind of regulating uh, how surrogates are being housed, how they're being paid, what happens when someone uh, steps away from surrogacy. But in general, my understanding from people who are on the ground is in particular in India, which was a very robust center for fertility tourism, it's really dramatically dropped off. There's a lot more regulation that, for whatever reason, has been discouraging people from using it as a place to go. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm hearing as well. That's interesting. In Thailand as well, apparently. And, you know, the, our experience with this is that when this happens, there tends to be other places that open up. It's a little bit like, um, uh, I don't know, a, a set of spouts or some, some pipes that when the pressure builds up, the water comes out somewhere and somewhere else. So my own guess is that you'll see increased interest in uh, Latin America for surrogacy destinations, although there's complications there to do with religion in particular. And we've seen this uh, the story, as you probably well know, in the adoption world, where actually international adoption for many parts of Latin America also became harder over time. Well, yeah, that's to put it mildly. Uh, <laughs> shutting down almost completely uh, yeah. in, many, in many places. Uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, Guatemala was at one point um, one of the largest uh, uh, places, one of the largest sending countries uh, for adoption to the United States. And it was also being beginning to be looked at uh, for a place for surrogacy as well. Uh, and uh, that was completely shut down, I think, in t- 2008. It's been a while since, uh, I think it was in 2008, the, uh, from the adoption standpoint. And it's, it's barely moving, it has barely moved since then. And I have not heard much uh, happening with surrogacy as well, I mean, since that, since that time as well. So, all right. Um, one of the questions that that I think intended parents need to wrestle with, and most of them do when they are thinking about going abroad uh, for surrogacy, and I think this would apply to uh, people in Europe coming to the United States for a surrogate, as well as intended parents in the United States going to wherever, India, Thailand, uh, Latin America, wherever. Is surrogacy a form of exploitation? And and how do we wrestle, and how do we know if it's a form of exploitation? And does it matter if it's a if the surrogate is in a, a highly developed country such as the United States or the surrogate is in an under a developing country such as India or Thailand or, or uh, uh, one of the Latin American countries? Yeah, so it's a very big and complicated question. You know, in the, in the book chapter uh, on this, I, I wrestle with it a little bit. Um, so on the one hand, it depends on I, what I often say is when you say uh, exploitation, you can mean a bunch of different things, and let's just play through some of them. If your concern is about the safety of the procedure, the quality of the care being given to the surrogate, uh, the level of informed consent and understanding, I think unquestionably uh, in developed countries, all of those things tend to be higher than in developing uh, countries and places like India. If you're just thinking about it in terms of how much money this is for these people, Uh, I would say the wages being paid in India to surrogates, even though they're a lot less than what's paid in the United States, tend to represent a much larger share of a lifetime earning capacity for these women. 
uh, significantly more. So you're talking about, you know, uh, really, you know, two to five years of, of wages from labor is the equivalent. So in terms of the good you're doing by, uh, in terms of making a real difference in someone's life, it's much more likely to be the case in India that you're doing that as opposed to in the U.S. But that cuts both ways because you might say, well, these women are really being given offers that are so good they can't refuse them. And some people are troubled by that notion, some idea of the dollar signs are kind of uh, blinding these women to the choices they're making. There are also has That's been allegations. That's in the United States, you're saying, that the dollar well, signs are, are, are or, well, or uh, abroad as well. Because, as you point out, um, uh, the, the, contrary to what a lot of people realize, the wage of a surrogate is, as you just said, I think you just said tw- two to three time, two to three years worth. One surrogacy, what she is paid, is the equivalent of what most surrogates would be able to earn in in two to three years. That's right, and especially in a place like like India. And the profile of a typical surrogate is very different in a place like India than a place like the United States. The average surrogate in the United States is high school or some college educated. Right, she's she tends to be actually relatively middle class, typically lower middle class, but middle class nonetheless, tends to have had at least one or two successful pregnancies ahead of time, right? So these are kind of what the things that surrogacy agencies in the United States look for. And as a result, you're talking about somebody who's relatively, you know, well, well educated, not at the point of being destitute. In a place like India, where the population is, most of the population lives so far below us in terms of their standard of living, right? Uh, the women who are being recruited for surrogacy uh, are also quite poor, right? Now, it's, it's again, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, you might say, well, this opportunity to be a surrogate is really life-changing for a woman in India in a way that it's not, to buy herself out of bonded labor, to afford a dowry, and the like. Uh, and that's a good thing. But on the other hand, you or might say Or to send her other money. children to school or, exactly. or I mean, other things like that, right, to raise her family out of poverty, right. Exactly. On the other hand, you might say the money involved is so high that it gives us a concern that they're not making a rational choice. So a lot of this depends on how good you think people are at making choices about these kinds of things and how paternalistic you want to be to intervene. Um, The other thing to think about is uh, a little bit about the social consequences of being a, uh, a surrogate and how it plays out in different societies. Um, so one of the most interesting things about Anand, this place in India where a lot of the surrogacy takes place, is that actually there's a fair number of aunties and nieces that are both surrogates at the same time, right? So there can be families of surrogates, which is just fascinating yeah. sociologically. Um, but there is concern that, you know, so the women in some of the studies that have been done, the anthropological ethnographic studies, um, you really see a mixed bag. There's some women who feel a lot of confidence and their self-worth is improved by virtue of having been a surrogate. They consider themselves desirable and helping someone in the West in a way that actually builds their self-confidence. There are others who feel, you know, at the end of the day, they feel as though there are these children that they produce uh, through pregnancy that they'll never see again and won't have a connection with, right? Uh, so, you know, this is just to say it's quite complicated. In my mind, it depends a lot on whether you think um, – if if you think the problem is exploitation, I often say to people, then you're really talking about whether someone's not being paid enough. There exists a dollar amount for which it would not be exploitative. And that's the problem. And what you want is to better establish price floors in what these women are paid to make sure they're getting paid, to make sure they're able to actually use the money to improve their lives. 
I think that's much more of a life concern in a place like India than a place like the United States where um, the demand and supply for surrogacy is such that I think most women in the United States get paid a considerable wage, and I think it's done in a way that's quite proper and quite well regulated within the United States. Whereas in a place like India, there's much more of a variation of experience. Yeah, and and there is a feeling, whether it's a whether it's a valid feeling or not, uh, and it may and it may just be a either a paternalistic uh, attitude or it could be a, you know, we in the United States know best, you know, an oblique type of attitude. But there is a feeling that women here in the United States are making a more independent decision. They have other options, so it is a freer decision that they're making versus in India having. Know that that the women there, or Thailand, or uh, whatever country, as you point out, that comes in to fill the gap, that they have so few options. Um, but it's complicated because because they have so few options, this becomes a a good option for them. So to deny them this, you know, who are you really helping? Exactly, and this is sometimes called the hypocrisy argument. That if I say to you you're so poor and so badly off that I'm going to deny you, because you're so poor and so badly off, I'm going to deny you this opportunity to improve your life, right? Yeah. I'm going to do that. I may have some kind of obligation to redistribute towards you to make you well off, to lift you out of poverty. If I'm not going to give you this way of lifting yourself out of poverty, I have an obligation to find another way to do it. But I think it's very unlikely that most of these women in India who want to be surrogates will will, will be helped by Americans. You know, So there is this question about whether by denying someone a choice, you are sentencing them to continue their bad situation, which is what makes you skeptical about giving them the choice in the first place. So, you know, it's complicated, and some people also think that surrogacy is particularly complicated because it's not just that we're paying you to do something that carries some risks, but we're really paying you to suppress a particular kind of emotion, an emotional attachment to a baby you're carrying, right? So it's not just any kind of labor, if you pardon the pun, but it's an attempt to kind of get you to review yourself as a commodity, as a market good, rather than to experience pregnancy the way most women experience their pregnancy. Uh, so some well, then, people, especially some, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I'm just going to say, and then that begs the question of does it matter whether you're talking about the terms that are used, uh, or traditional surrogacy, this is for our audience, I realize you, you're very aware of these terms, uh, but uh, traditional surrogacy where the surrogate's egg is uh, is the one that is used. In other words, uh, through art, usually artificial insemination, the intended father's sperm, although it can be donated sperm, uh, is transferred and a, 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 the, uh, the surrogate's egg, and so it's her genetic, uh, her biological genetic material is used versus a gestational surrogate where the egg comes from a donor or from the intended mother, the sperm comes from a donor or the intended father, so the surrogate has no genetic connection. So does that change the whole ethical argument in some way? Yeah, I mean, so I think most people think that the um, when you're talking about full surrogacy, what you're asking these women to do is a much more dramatic requirement of them, right? It is not only to give up a baby you've carried, but a baby with whom you share a genetic connection. Now, the interesting thing is in the United States, for example, in California, we're much more comfortable as a result with uh, gestational surrogacy than full surrogacy, and the contracts are enforced. But one funny thing about this is that itself drives up the cost, much more expensive to actually have a separate egg donor and a separate surrogate. 
and also it means for the egg donors where egg donation does carry some uh, some risks involved, some, you know, mm-hmm. some small risks of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and the like. We're actually creating a system. If we're going to push everybody to gestational surrogacy, it means that there's a class of women who are going to bear these risks that wouldn't in a world of just pure traditional surrogacy. That's right. To, to say nothing yeah. of you know in the the uh, hyperstimulation certainly being one of them, but just you're also flooding your body with uh, these young women, often women who are paying their way through college or are you know, that's a very typical uh, scenario, are flooding their body with really significant drugs. These ovulatory stimulating drugs, the gonadotropins, are not you know they're they're strong drugs. So yeah, yep. that's the point. So who are we really protecting here? It's an interesting. It's but again, complex. the U.S. law, and in general, I would say people are just much more comfortable with traditional, uh, with gestational surrogacy than they are with full surrogacy. That's somehow dividing up this role of motherhood. And you know, it's really interesting because if you look at the history of reproductive technology, the earliest legal disputes about it are actually about adultery, whether women who used artificial insemination by donor were engaged in adultery or not. These are like the first cases ever decided on the subject. And I think there's some very kind of deep conceptions about kind of uh, marriage and sanctity and keeping things as nuclear as possible. But on the one hand, what we've done is push people to consider third-party reproduction and surrogacy in order to kind of feel comfortable with there only being a gestational connection, not a genetic connection to the woman who's giving up the baby. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about a fertility tourism, their options and the ethics. Uh, Creating a Family has the largest or one of the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. Uh, we There are three ways to find us on Facebook. Uh, you can, uh, of course, we have a page, and that's facebook.com slash creatingafamily. We also have a very large, very active support group, and that is facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily, or the easiest way is just to type in the word creating a family into the Facebook search box and both the page and the group pop up and you can like the page and join the group. You can also connect with me individually, which I go by dawn.davenport1. We hang out on Pinterest and Twitter as well, and we go by at creating a family there. Um, Let's move to talking about some of the immigration issues that can occur uh, almost exclusively with surrogacy because the reality is with egg donation, you're coming back to the United States when you are uh, just a few weeks pregnant. So the uh, it's, it doesn't become, and the baby is usually born here in the United States. So the immigration issues are primarily with surrogacy. So why is there a problem? If, if you are the intended, you plan on raising this child, and you go abroad and uh, you uh, hire a, you, um, well, you usually will hire a, um, um, an agency to help you navigate this, and you go abroad and your child is born, a child that you intend to raise uh, and, and have it to be 100% your child, why is there an immigration issue? Yep, so it's fascinating. So believe it or not, this all relates to Ted Cruz's bid for presidency. So in the, um, give me a second <laughs> oh, to explain why. An unusual tangent, but let me explain why. In the United States and all over the world, there's really two ways of, of forming citizenship. One is called just sanguinis, by the blood. The other is just solely uh, by the soil, right? So typically we have a rule that says either where you're born physically 
or where you have a blood tie to one of the relative genetic tie that's been understood to mean um, will you have citizenship. In some places like the United States, say both, right? If you're born in the United States or born to a U.S. citizen, okay. Other places uh, say one versus the other. So what ends up happening? So sometimes it turns out that the country from which the intended parents come and the country where the surrogate is have opposite rules such that the baby ends up with no citizenship. So, for example, the, um, the uh, place of the intended parents has a rule of where the baby is born, and that's where the surrogate delivers, and it's a place like, uh, let's just say, uh, the Ukraine, right? On the flip side, Ukraine has a rule that says it's all about the genetic connection and who the genetic parents are, which should be if the parents came from the United Kingdom, for example, or Belgium, would be there. So you have these two bodies of law pointing in opposite directions, and as a result, you have a situation where the baby is not claimed or not allowed to be a citizen of either country and is born a stateless person. So that's kind of one configuration about how this can happen. The other let way inter- it can happen... Let me interrupt yeah, just a second and say, and one of the things that, that, that you might not realize, but being a stateless person... There's no enti- there's no government that can give you a passport. There's no government that can allow you can't just get on a plane even as a you know a, a three week old infant without having some form of travel document. And if you don't have a country, you have no. There's no government that there's no country that can give you that. That's right. And again, what mostly this happens, we've had actually a number of cases of how exactly this happened. There was a famous one in India with a Japanese called Baby Manji. There was another case from involving the Ukraine and Belgium, the Ghislaine case, which I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. What's ended up happening in most of these cases, at some point, one of the two governments backs down and they carve out a special exception of one kind or another, but they say, this case only, and then they tell their embassies and try to notify clinics in India or elsewhere, please don't take citizens of our country. If you do, that person will be in trouble and the like. So often these pop up. In one case, it's solved after, but sometimes after two or three years of some yeah, child living you, in a... Yeah, yeah the, the Belgium... Tell, tell about the... Now, this is... I don't know if this would happen currently, but this is the case between Belgium and Ukraine, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Belgium and Ukraine, the Lane case. So, yeah, Yeah. the Baby Samuel case. So it was a situation like this where the two laws were kind of pointing in opposite uh, directions. And essentially, um, he's born to a surrogate in Ukraine. Uh, His parents are two men from Belgium, which allows same-sex couples to adopt, but there was difficulties getting a surrogate in Belgium. They hire a gestational surrogate in the U.K. upon birth, and this was 2008, this wasn't that long ago, uh, the parents go to the Belgian embassy in Kiev, and the Belgian embassy says, we're not going to recognize him as a citizen of Belgium, because Belgian law on surrogacy didn't say we have to, there was silence on the issue. And the Ukrainians said, we're not going to recognize him as a Ukrainian citizen. So couldn't get a passport, couldn't leave the Ukraine. Took two years and three months to resolve the issue. The little boy is placed first with the foster family and then a Ukrainian orphanage until finally a Belgian court rules in favor of the parents and the Belgian foreign ministry agrees to give him a passport. And at that point, you know, two and a half years after his birth, the child is finally brought back to Belgium for the first time and from there on leaves, presumably, we hope, a normal life. 
So this is a really tricky situation, and it's happened more than once. So that's one thing to think practically if you're thinking about doing one of these things is you want to make sure you're going to a place that where the law in your country and the law in the destination country are simpatico. They're kind of interfacing in a way that makes sense. And the brokerage or whoever you're using the agency to arrange this has sophistication and experience in this particular uh uh, area that they know what they're doing and have had uh, many prior clients like this. So that's one kind of configuration where these problems occur. The other is a case where, and this is a lot of people coming to the United States, there have been cases from France and from Spain where uh, surrogacy or commercial surrogacy is illegal or unavailable, it's against the law, and someone travels to the United States to get commercial surrogacy and then wants to bring the baby back. And the question is whether the parents are going to be charged with a crime and whether a place like France is required to recognize uh, the citizenship of the child because they have a very strong anti-surrogacy policy. And one of these cases made it to the European Court of Human Rights recently. They finally forced France to basically accept the child in this particular case. But in many other parts of the world, in many other circumstances, this can be a very dicey proposition. So you have to understand whether you're committing a crime by going abroad, whether they'll let you bring the child back. Uh, and that is just something that I think most people have not a lot of experience with. No, and they don't, and they don't think about it beforehand. So what should a U.S. intended couple do, or parents do, to prevent the immigration issues, um, bringing a child back into the United States? And let's let's talk about two different scenarios. One, when they have a genetic connection, in other words, either the father or the mother or both. Um, the mother would be the egg donor or the father would have been the sperm donor or both, the father and the mother, the intended father and the mother. Um, it was their uh, genetic offspring. So is there any problem going abroad for surrogacy if at least one person of the couple has a genetic connection to the child? So, you know, I never let, all questions are always specific to a particular case. You know, I will say that um, there's a complicated kind of regime. There's really two regimes. It depends on how you try to apply for the kid's citizenship. Do you do it when they're brought back to the United States or do you do it from abroad? And that's going to determine whether you go through kind of the State Department or you go through uh, the children. I'll say uh, the Secretary of – so basically the Secretary of State – interprets the statute to always require a blood relationship to transmit citizenship by descent. And so it says that if there's a blood relationship to a U.S. citizen, you're okay. So I'd say that circumstance, you're fine, especially if both parents are genetic parents of the child, both the, the mother and the father are U.S. citizens, easiest case, no problem. One of them is a genetic parent, also an easy case, although you have to be able to document your genetic citizenship, right? Uh, the idea that you have to be able to, to document that you are the genetic mother and you are a citizen. And there was That'd actually... Enough, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, that's you think easy. so. Yeah, although there actually have been cases of, for example, tragic cases of switched embryos, for example, where they determine actually at that point, they actually discover that, no, actually it's not the genetic child of the intended parents. Uh, and you say, well, what do you do now, right? Uh, yeah, should they be? So, so that can happen. Um, when neither of them are uh, the genetic parents, neither 
Uh, sorry, neither of them are a U.S. citizen, neither genetic parent or a U.S. citizen. I think you're in some real trouble, and it would be quite difficult to get citizenship if the surrogacy occurs abroad. By contrast, when you are foreign individuals, so not U.S. citizens, who use a U.S.-based surrogate, because of the rule that someone born on U.S. soil is a U.S. citizen, the child who is born is a U.S. citizen automatically, even though neither of the genetic parents are actually uh, citizens, which is interesting. And there have been some, you know, stuff in the news about people trying to deliver in the United States in order to achieve this. I don't know how much truth there is to that. But this is just a quirk of the way the fact that we allow either citizenship by descent, by genetic lineage, or citizenship based on where you're born. And, and okay, so tell us the, the Ted. I think I know the Ted Cruz connection, but to come full circle to make sure we yeah. don't keep people in suspense. <laughs> how, how, Cruz, how do we blame Ted Cruz for this? Well, I blame Ted Cruz for it, but the issue of whether Ted Cruz is eligible for citizenship or not, in part, determined depends on the fact that we have this rule. Um, the Constitution uses the term "natural-born citizen," which might be a little bit different from just being a citizen or becoming. Uh, a citizen, but Ted Cruz wasn't born in the United States, right? And his mother, there's a question about what passport his mother held when she gave birth to him. So uh, it's no doubt that Ted Cruz is a citizen now, but there is this question about whether he was a citizen then or not, which is the same kinds of questions we ask about these tragic cases of these kids who are stuck in other places. Yeah, okay. So the the, the bottom line is that if you are going abroad and for surrogacy and you are planning on using a egg donor or sperm donor and 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 or both where where there will be neither of the parents or if you're a single yourself will have a genetic connection to this child and 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 the way they would find this out is through doing a genetic test of the baby and you so it's not right. like you're going to be able to uh slip one by it's going to be obvious um, you need to seek, before you do this, you need to see an immigration attorney in the United States who specializes in uh, reproductive law, and there are some of those, and you should do that before you uh, even contemplate uh, uh, that uh, trying to do that. Absolutely, and I would even say I would even say even if you're both U.S. citizens and are thinking of you know it's both your gametes, it's your sperm and your egg, I would say still if, if you're going to use fertility tourism at all, uh, you want to make sure that you're having someone who advises you who knows not only the law uh, in the place where you're going in India or Thailand, the law that kind of controls this, but also knows enough U.S. immigration law to adequately inform you and advise you. Exactly, and that's a fairly unique combination: reproductive law and and um, uh, immigration. immigration. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they they do exist, and we've uh, and to uh, find some of them, uh, we've had a number of them on the show in the past. So uh, go to our website, creatingafamily.org, dot uh, org, and just search for fertility tourism, or, or better yet, go to we have an A to Z, or go to the tab at the top that says infertility. Uh, click on that. That takes you to our infertility landing page. Click on the A to Z resources, and that takes you to our resource guide. And we have an entire section on fertility tourism where you will find uh, all the shows that we've done on this topic. And we've had a number of uh, these specialized attorneys who specialize in both immigration and um, uh, reproductive law uh, and and call one of those up and even 
get if it's possible to even do a consult uh, over the phone so you don't have to live where where they are. All right. Um, one of the uh, potential issues to consider is uh, what, and this is both tragic and, and particularly complex, but what happens if the intended parents back away? And that can be for any number of reasons. It could be because of divorce and all of a sudden, you know, it was one thing to think about being uh, a parent, but then, you know, through after the divorce, the single parenthood is not what you're cut out for, or you think so. Um, it can also be when there is something that is wrong with the baby. The baby is born with a birth defect. Um, so can an intended parent um, back away? I mean, you, if you were pregnant with your own child, it would be fairly complex. It would be difficult. I suppose it's possible to back away, but difficult. Um is that even a possibility for an intended parent to say, no, this is not what I signed up for, I've changed my mind? So it happens, and there's a question about what kind of law kind of binds you to this. Other than um, moral um, law, yeah. So certainly as a moral matter, it's a very serious thing to walk away. And there have been, you know, there are cases that are more sympathetic and less sympathetic cases where um, you're told one thing about the donor, about the donor's genetic history, and it turns out not to be true. Uh, or, uh, you know, one thing, the, the surrogate behaves in a way differently than you thought she would during the pregnancy that causes some of the problems. So I understand I'm, where people are coming from when this does happen, but it's such a hard situation. Essentially what you're doing is you're creating an orphan. You're creating a child who won't have any natural parentage because typically the surrogate will not be willing to or may not be willing to assume parentage. I will say some places like India, some of the draft legislation in India, for example, uh, requires that there be uh, a local guardian who's identified and willing to take the delivery of the child uh, or hand it over to an adoption agency if the party defaults, the traveling party, the person coming from the U.S., uh, defaults. So some countries have tried to build this in, that there is a safety valve should this happen, because as you say, it does happen. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, the question will be: Can they, you know, can they actually force you to take the child home with you? Probably not. If you flee the jurisdiction and never go back to India, right? It's not clear that India will be able to claim jurisdiction over you or force you to do something. So there are ways out legally. I wouldn't recommend them, and I think you know there's a lot of moral reasons why we shouldn't. But because we live in a complex world that's international and the limits of various countries' jurisdiction is also limited, uh, if you do default and run away, it's not clear that anybody is going to, to stop you, right? Now, maybe they'll claim that they're your child and, you know, register something with the State Department. But I don't know of any cases where this has escalated to the point where the destination country for fertility tourism has tried to compel uh, the home country citizen uh, in a case where they've tried to back away. Um, luckily, it hasn't happened too often, um, but it is kind of totally tragic on all sides of the issue, but it does result in a child often created who doesn't have a parent and who's going to have to fend for themselves in a country uh, where the social support structure may not be that great for such children. What about the option of the uh, the uh, country seeking through our government uh, to force the intended parents to at least pay child support. Have you ever heard of yeah. a case where that has been successful? So I haven't heard of a case uh, like that. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It's possible it's happened. I've just kept it quiet. But I know of no case where one country has tried to force um, 
another country's citizen to kind of pay. And it may be that actually people who do default in these situations, who do run away, end up paying the child support out of a moral obligation or a feeling of moral obligation anyways. But, you know, it's very, very difficult for India to assert jurisdiction over an American citizen when they're back in the United States. I guess you could bring a lawsuit in India, you could find them, uh, you know, uh, in default, charge them, and then seek to go to the United States to enforce a judgment in U.S. courts. That's a possibility. But I don't know of any case where that's actually happened in the context of fertility tourism. All right. Let me remind you of some of our other wonderful gold sponsors, and this is through their support that we are able to bring you this show. Some of those gold sponsors include Nightlight Christian Adoptions and their Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program. Uh, They are offering embryo adoption services to their clients throughout the world, and they um, have had more than 400 babies born through the Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. And we have Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. Um, let's, it's, uh, actually, this is uh, relevant since I've just mentioned two of our sponsors who uh, have embryo donation uh, programs. Um, have you seen an uptick in embryo donation as a uh, source of, of draw for either uh, f- foreigners coming to the United States to partake of, of our embryo donation, which is sometimes called embryo adoption uh, programs, or um, uh, U.S. citizens going to other countries that might have embryo donation programs? So it's a great question. I will say that I think that the embryo donation program is much more robust or well-established, at least well-known in the United States. So I don't know too much of Americans going abroad. For people from abroad coming to the United States, and this is not something I know about, I know that uh, some, many of the programs require kind of home visits uh, and the like, much more similar to the adoption process to make sure the embryo is being adopted into a family that can care for it. And I don't know whether they do those home visits for foreign potential claimants. So it's not something I know about, but it's a very interesting set of questions. You've got me thinking now whether it happens or not. You know, and I can, if you're interested, I can connect you to people who would be having, who would know the answer to that. I yeah, I would, would love to know about whether they do that, yeah. Yeah, there's there's actually two two different models that are used in the United States, and and one is the adoption model. You're exactly right, and that follows and 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 many not many but a few adoption agencies um, uh, are do do have that type of program, including the one the, uh, the Nightlight uh, Snowflake Embryo yep. Adoption Program, and they that model does utilize a uh, a home study process. I and I don't know whether and my guess is that there would be a way for them that to be conducted but I actually don't know the answer. There is however another uh model that is used and that's used by some clinics uh who have uh, uh embryos that uh has been donated to them and that model does not require uh, for better or for worse, does not require uh, a, a home study. However, many of those clinics 
require that the families that are going to receive the embryos have be, be a current patient with them. So hmm. that would seem to me that that would probably make it the, what would be the odds. I guess it could happen, though. Um, yeah, especially people are coming yeah. to the United States for for other kinds of, of treatment. Right, so and that's, already that's, patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and what about the quality of care and, and, and in other countries? I think we know that oftentimes people are coming to the United States, uh, if they're coming abroad for treatment here, one of the reasons it draws them is the quality of care, and certainly our reproductive uh, uh, sciences are, are very advanced and, and, and more advanced in the United States than many other countries. Um, so I wouldn't, that's really not so much an issue. But what about going abroad? Because if you're going abroad for surrogacy, uh, you are utilizing the IVF uh, labs and the, IV, and, the IV, and the reproductive endocrinologist in other countries. So you're putting a whole lot of, of, um, of faith in a developing world uh, uh, medical establishment for what's really very state-of-the-art and very high-tech medicine. Is that foolish? I mean, are they, are, can they hold a candle to the quality of care? And by quality of care, I'm, I'm really referring to, the at this point, not the care the surrogates are getting, but the care, the, the, the uh, protocols that are being used for the IVF itself as well as for the uh, embryologists and growing the embryos and things like that. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, my answer to this is similar to my answer for other kinds of medical tourism. So for cardiac, just to use it as a comparison, there are clinics around the world, in India, for example, who have cardiac bypass morbidity and mortality rates that are as good or better than the Mayo Clinic and our best clinics. But, you know, that's one or two clinics in India that have shared their data, and we can say this confidently about them. The same is true for fertility. There's a big variation in the quality of care you're being provided. There are excellent clinics, and there are less good clinics out there. Uh, just as is true in the United States, if you look at the CDC kind of data on kind of, you know, successful um, implantations and stuff like that. So, you know, my feeling of this is that you want to go to a place that does enough of these and is sharing its data and has uh, physicians that have been trained uh, with the right kinds of trainings. And, you know, for the most part, one nice thing about the fertility medicine world is it's become more globalized and more American fertility doctors, I think, are likely to know colleagues abroad than they were 10 or 15 years ago. But there are great centers. For example, Barbados has an excellent fertility center that I've actually uh, been to before. Uh, there are others that are, you know, much less good around the world. So it's really a question of doing your due diligence, uh, just as you would in the United States. Uh, but some of those centers are better or as good as the best United States centers. Many are not nearly as good because, as you say, the general quality of care in the United States for reproductive medicine is very high. We do provide some resources at Creating a Family for questions to ask uh, to try to determine the quality of care. Um, one of the things it's hard to uh, it's it's much harder to determine the quality of of of, the, of the, the medicine that you're going to be receiving, the quality of the reproductive endocrinologist as well as their laboratory. In another country, there are some specific things, however, that you can ask, uh, and uh, we will I will link to that uh, tomorrow. 
in the blog that we do. So um, some of those uh, uh, questions to ask, things like that. We have come to the end of our time. Thank you so much, uh, Glenn Cohen, for being our guest today. Um, For our audience, please do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes. We are by far the number one rated show in the areas of infertility and adoption, and we would love to keep that. Uh, And iTunes utilizes your ratings. So if you could pop over to iTunes, uh, type in Creating a Family, and give us a rating, or go to our radio page on our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and click on the iTunes button there, and that will take you to our ratings as well. I thoroughly recommend the book, Patients Without Borders, Medical Tourism, Law, and Ethics, by our guest, Glenn Cohen. You can get that, well, you can get it online anywhere, and I suspect that a number of independent bookstores or or, uh, bricks-and-mortar bookstores would have it as well. Glenn, are there other places that that you would tell people to get the book other than our standard Amazon? No, I think that's good. Oxford University Press sometimes has discounts. They're the one who put out the book, so you can look for patients without passports there. Gotcha. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I uh, truly appreciate it, and it's been a fun show. Everyone, I will see you next week. PayCorps knows HR teams are under pressure to recruit and retain top talent. You need more than HR tech. You need expertise at the core. Meet PayCor. Our technology saves you time. Our expertise helps you make a difference. PayCor.com slash meet PayCor.